This morning at the conclusion of our lesson, we sang number 527 in our books as an invitation song. And I don't know if Matt was prophesying or what he was doing, but he uh, led that song and I thought, well, how perfect because I had planned on looking at the words of that song to start off our lesson tonight. The title of that song is Let the Lower Lights Be Burning, and it uses the idea or the image of a lighthouse to talk about our responsibility as the church to be shining the light of truth to the world around us and allowing those that are lost to be able to see the way home. The song reads, Brightly beams our Father's mercy from His lighthouse evermore. But to us, He gives the keeping of the lights along the shore. Dark the night of sin has settled. Loud the angry billows roar. Eager eyes are watching and longing for the lights along the shore. Trim your feeble lamp, my brother, some poor sailor who is tempest-tossed, trying now to make the harbor in the darkness, may be lost. The chorus is, let the lower lights be burning. Send a gleam across the wave. Some poor struggling, fainting seaman, you may rescue you may save. We're going to talk about the church tonight. We're going to talk about our responsibility as the church to be shining the light as we have already uh, made note of and as we noticed the hymn here as it so fitly expresses that sentiment. And I want us to think about that mission as the church, and we're going to think about some ways that we can fail that mission. And the reason that we want to do that is so that we can avoid doing the wrong things, things that will not make us successful, and in fact do those things that will be pleasing to God and that will allow us to be saving the souls of the lost round about us. The mission of the church, there are various passages that we might go to as we think about defining what that is. I'd like us to first come to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and look at a verse here where the Apostle Paul is writing and expressing his humility. He says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He says, Of whom I am chief. And so as we think about the mission of Christ, we know that he came, obviously, to be a sacrifice for us, to pay the penalty of sin, on our behalf, so that we might, through His innocence and perfection, be able to be cleansed and have hope 
And so as we think about the purpose of his kingdom that he established when he came, the church, his body, we see that it is one and the same. He came into this world to save sinners. And we must be concerned with that mission ourselves. Back here a few pages in the book of Ephesians. Looking there at chapter 3. Start reading with me there in verse 8. Paul again writing says, To me who am less than the least of all the saints. Again we see Paul's humility. He says, This grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. To the intent, he says, that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known, notice, by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. And so here again we see the church is mentioned, and we see the purpose of the church explained, the mission of the church. This wisdom of God, the plan of God, the plan of salvation as we refer to it as so often, is meant to be made known to the world around by the church, as he says there in verse 10. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, we read there that we are, as the church, as Christians, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, he says, that we may notice proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So here again we see emphasized what we as Christians are to be involved with. Again, we see it all matches up. We are to be concerned with the truth and with shining that light to those around us, proclaiming his praises. Back here in the book of Colossians, in the first chapter there, As we think about what he has done for us, again, we've already noticed some of that in what we've read. But here in verse 12, it says, Giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness, and he has conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our sins. So we are to be proclaiming that to those around us, letting that light shine again to borrow from not only the illustration of the lighthouse, but Jesus' own words there in Matthew chapter 5. And so how can we fail our mission? Maybe we might think of some pretty obvious answers. But I want us to think about some things specifically that I think are good for us to make note of so that we can avoid them in our lives and collectively 
as brothers and sisters, as members of the body, so that we can be pleasing to God and not uh, be unpleasing. The first thing that we're going to think about is misplacing emphasis. We can emphasize the wrong things as God's people. And there's several things that are going to fall under that that overall point. And the first of those is not emphasizing what the church actually is or misunderstanding what the church is. You know, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, we're going to go to church. We all say that, I'm sure. I I say that. And in my head, I always think when I say that, well, maybe that sounds... Uh, confusing, or maybe that's um, confusing to to somebody else, but I kind of understand what I'm meaning uh, when I say that. But do we really understand what what the church is? We know, of course, that it's not a place that we go to. This building that we are assembled in is not the church. It's the place where we assemble as the church. But the church, of course, is the people. It's you and I. It's those who have been redeemed by Christ's blood through obedience to him. And so understanding that is is very important because if we think about the church as just this building or being a part of the church as only what we do when we come together to assemble on the Lord's Day or at a Bible study or something of that nature, then what are we doing the rest of the time? You know, if we forget that you and I are the church, then sometimes we can be out here through the week and forgetting all about what our responsibilities are as the church. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, tells us that God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which notice he says is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 27, as he spoke to the the, uh, individual Christians there in Corinth, notice he says, you are the body of Christ and members individually. Colossians 3 and verse 17 tells us that whatever we do in word or deed, That's not just when we're here together. That's whatever we do, right, from day to day. We are to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so recognizing that we we are the church, that we are individual members of one another and of our head, who is Christ, uh, it helps us to emphasize the proper things, not just certain times of our um, daily life, but every day of our life. Sometimes we can get caught up in physical things and emphasize that over what is truly important, and that being the spiritual aspect of things. I'd like us to turn to the book of Revelation and This morning I had you put a marker back at the uh, 
latter portion of the book of Genesis. But tonight, if you want to put a bookmark back here in the book of Revelation, the first couple of chapters there, uh, two and three especially, we're going to be flipping back here a couple different times as we look at some, some passages where Jesus is addressing these seven churches in Asia. We're going to look here, first of all, in chapter 3, as I said, and we're going to start in verse 14, and notice what Jesus said to those in Laodicea. And so it says, To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, he says, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. And so then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. The idea there is, we know that most foods are meant to be consumed either when they're hot or when they're cold, right? Some things, you wouldn't want ice cream when it's hot. That defeats the purpose. And so that's what he's saying here. You're supposed to be a certain way, but you've lost your temperature. You're not at the right temperature. And so you are not pleasing. And so I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. He uses that illustration. And he goes on and says in verse 17, Because you say, notice, I am rich. I have become wealthy and have need of nothing. You do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And so he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. Not rich in these physical things that they were focused on, but this is a spiritual richness that he's talking about. He says, white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed that you would anoint your eyes with eye salve and, and be able to see. He says in verse 19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. And so we see these individuals here who were so consumed with the spiritual, or the physical rather, that they had lost sight of what was most important. And... Jesus was not pleased with them and identifies their spiritual poverty. You know, we can think about some examples of getting focused too much on the physical just in our assemblies, can't we? For example, sometimes we might get together and you're sitting there thinking, man, it's hot in here. Or as the case this morning, several people said, most oh, cold in here, <laughs> right? So sometimes it's the opposite. But sometimes we can get so focused on that that we, we stop thinking about what the person praying is saying in their prayer. Maybe we stop focusing on the words that we are singing to one another and to God. We stop paying attention to the lesson because we're so focused on the temperature and maybe how uncomfortable we are from that sense. Maybe we get to thinking, man, these pews are just so uncomfortable to sit on. And we focus on things of that nature and get distracted from why we're here and, and what we should be thinking about. Maybe that person behind us, we man, they're just really off-key when we're singing. 
<laughs> and you get so distracted. And again, you, you lose sight of what's really important. You know, what if that's where this, this picture of this uh, park, uh, park structure here, if that's where we assembled every week, would you still come? It's kind of a sobering thought, isn't it? Will we say, well, that's, that's not going to be comfortable from my physical uh, aspect, so, I'll, you know, I'm not going to bother with that. We can get caught up in these physical things and, again, lose sight of what truly should be our focus. In Matthew 13 and verse 22, uh, Jesus makes the point here as he's talking about, again, the parable of the sower. We know that this application goes beyond, of course, our assemblies. We can be distracted just in our daily lives from what is really most important. Jesus said that he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and then the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, they choke the word, and the person becomes unfruitful. And so sometimes, again, we can get so caught up in these things of the world, these physical things, and we can lose sight of, again, that mission to be shining the light. We know that we can't, of course, serve both things. We have to pick where our emphasis is going to lie. Jesus made that plain. Matthew 6 and verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters. We, uh, he, either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. That word kind of designates riches or earthly things. Kind of in contrast to the Laodiceans that we had noted there uh, a moment ago, in Revelation chapter 2, we find Jesus here addressing the church in Smyrna. Notice what he says to them. He says, These things says the first and the last who was dead, but now has come to life. I know your works, your tribulation. And notice he says, I know your poverty. These people were not well off physically. But notice that it interjects there, but you are rich. So they weren't wealthy people, but Jesus says, you're rich, because they were focused on the right things. He goes on, he says, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. He says, do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, that you will have tribulation for ten days, but he says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And so we need to make sure that we are focused on the spiritual and not caught up and consumed with physical things. Partiality is another way that we can emphasize the wrong thing. We can, as we think about those that we would be shining the light to, sometimes we can let our biases or maybe past experiences that have been bad with uh, a certain, maybe we say type of person, uh, maybe somebody who was poor versus wealthy or somebody that's from this region of the world 
versus another, and we let those experiences or what we've heard about certain people uh, cause us to maybe not shine the light to this person as we would to another. And God certainly doesn't want us to be of that mind. In 1 Timothy 2, the first four verses there, it says, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications and prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks be made notice for all men, for kings, for those that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Notice, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In Acts chapter 10, we know that chapter is significant because for the first time, uh, a household of the Gentiles was converted to Jesus Christ. The gospel was preached to them. And as Peter is speaking there on that occasion, we find in Verse 34, that he opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. And so this gospel is for all, not just a select few. It wasn't all that long ago that we had noted what James wrote in the second chapter there starting in verse 1, where he says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say, Well, you can sit here in this good place. But then to the poor man, you tell him, Well, you stand there, or you can sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He says, Brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But he says, You've dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you're called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But he says, if you show partiality, you commit sin. and You are convicted by the law as transgressors. What if we had the opportunity to preach the gospel or talk about spiritual things with this lady here? She looks like the kind of person we're probably used to seeing around town, right? Or maybe this guy here, he looks pretty... Normal, or what we would consider to be normal for Worcester, Ohio, right? What about this guy, though? He looks a little bit different than most of us, doesn't he? Looks like he lives somewhere far away, in a different country. Would we be as, as willing to shine the light to him? Or will we say, well, maybe we need to avoid that person? Or maybe they look like this lady here. Or maybe we come across somebody that looks like that. And we think, well, there's no way that guy's going to be interested in what I have to say about Jesus, right? Or what about somebody that looks like that? You know, around town here, we have 
some folks that are homeless, that live pretty much on the streets. How do we treat those people? You know, I've, I've seen some pretty nasty things from people towards such individuals. We need to be as kind and loving to them as we would anyone else. Another way that we as God's lighthouse, if you will, as the church, another way that we can fail our mission is simply by being indifferent. By losing our zeal, by losing our passion for the work itself. When we get complacent and we get to a point where maybe we think, well, yeah, we have this mission and we have things that we should be doing, but, you know, we've got these other people that pretty much take care of that. You know, Devin preaches the sermons and, you know, we have these men appointed as deacons and, of course, Jim and Eldred are serving the congregation as elders and, you know, they pretty much handle all that stuff. So we can just kind of slack off maybe. We just kind of, we show up and, and uh, you know, we participate in the assemblies and these kinds of things. But beyond that, you know, they, they've got that handled. And so we, we kind of maybe become a little indifferent about the work and the fact that we are all individually expected to be zealous for shining this light. Coming back to the book of Revelation to notice another example here, I'd like us to look at chapter 2 and the first five verses as we consider the congregation at Ephesus. Jesus says there to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, he says, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles but are not, and found them to be liars. You persevered, you have patience. You've labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. But notice he says, nevertheless, I have this against you. And what is that? Well, they had left their first love, he says. And so he tells them to remember, therefore, from where they have fallen, to repent and do the first works. Or else, he says, I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. Again, unless you repent. So, we might say these were individuals who were doing the right things, weren't they? They were making sure that what was being taught was true, that those that came in amongst them claiming to be somebody with authority, claiming to be teaching the truth, they were evidently comparing that with what they knew to be true, with the, the scriptures that they had and proving those who were telling lies to be, in fact, liars. But they had forgotten their first love, he says. They were going through these motions, but they had lost that passion for saving souls, evidently. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2 Paul, as he wrote to those in Thessalonica, said, We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering 
without ceasing your work of faith, notice your labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved, your election by God. Our labor is more than just crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's, making sure that we're doing what God said to do. It's, it's doing it with the right motivation and the right reasoning behind it. We do these things because we love Him and because we love one another and we love those that are lost. We want to see them come home to their Father. Our first love. I think Jesus defined that very well for us in, in Matthew chapter 22. Turn with me there for a moment. Matthew chapter 22. We'll start there in verse 34. It says, When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, who was a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. He said, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And we note what Jesus said in response to that. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice he says, On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. What does he mean by that? Well, if you take love out of the equation, the rest of it all just falls apart because love is like the glue that holds it together. It's the nucleus of it all. And why did God do all that he's done through his Son and through the Holy Spirit? Down through the ages, why is he set in motion this plan to redeem us? Well, because He loves us. That's the driving force behind it all. And if it's not our driving force, if we're just going through those motions and we aren't really doing it because we're passionate about our love for God and our love for each other and the lost, then, then we've lost sight of what it's all about. 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, Peter reminds us there that the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, that promise of bringing an end to His physical creation, as is described in that chapter. But He is long-suffering towards us. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, I'll never forget there was a, a time, and I can't remember all the exact details, this just kind of popped in my head, but I I was kind of frustrated. It was, I believe, after, after services one day, and I don't know if I was frustrated about uh, somebody who I was hoping would come forward or be baptized that hadn't yet and just didn't seem like they were going to respond, but Somebody made the comment to me. They said, well, you can't save everyone. And I remember when, when that was said to me, it made me angry. Because I want to save everyone. God wants to save everyone. 
Now, we know in reality that not everyone is going to respond, but we should want to save everyone. If we've lost that, we've lost the spark that ignites it all. Finally, we can fail our mission when we let corruption enter in. When we stop following the truth and we inject our own ideas, or perhaps we leave things out of God's equation, when we allow ourselves to become corrupted, we, we will fail. Again, look with me in Revelation chapter 2, and let's look at verse 18 to start. And here we find Jesus addressing those in Thyatira. He says, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Again, he says, I know your works. Jesus knows our works even here in this place today. He knows our works, doesn't he? I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, your patience. As for your works, the last are more than the first. In other words, they've been improving. They've been growing, evidently. So that's a good thing. But nevertheless, he says, I have a few things against you. Because you allow, first of all, that woman who he calls or refers to as Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not. Indeed, I will cast her into a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now, to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed into pieces like the potter's vessels. As I have also received from my Father, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So by and large, they were doing well, but they had allowed this corruption to go unchecked. And Jesus says, you need to, you need to get that out from among you. Because we know that if we allow just a little bit of corruption, just a little bit of compromise with regards to the truth, to go unchecked, it can spread like a cancer, can it? It can affect more and more and cause us as a whole to be led astray. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 here, Jesus, or Paul rather, is writing and talking about the relationship between Jesus and his church. But in order to illustrate that relationship, he's talking about husbands and wives, and how that relationship is designed to work. 
He says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church. Notice, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. We as the church, this is the expectation. We are to be holy. We are to cast out anything that would be in opposition to the will of our Savior. In 1 John 5 and verse 18, John writes there and says, We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. And what does he mean? Well, he further explains that he who has been born of God, notice, keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. Are we individually, as members of the body, are we keeping ourselves from that thing or from those things that are sinful? It's an individual expectation. And when one of us stops committing ourselves to the truth, it can affect the rest if we're not careful. And so we must avoid corruption at all costs. I hope that as we've studied these things tonight and thought about our responsibility as a congregation of the Lord's people, uh, that, we'll ball, that we will all be emboldened to shine our lights ever brighter and to make sure that we are being zealous from day to day with those around about us, that we will strive to reach those who are lost and bring them to He who can cleanse them of their sins and give them hope of eternal life. Psalm 116 and verse 12, the question is asked there by the psalmist, What shall I render to the Lord for all His benefits toward me? I think that's a very good question for us all to think about from day to day. What shall I render to the Lord for all that He has done for me? Well, we owe Him our lives. We owe Him our all. And when we all have that mentality, then collectively as His people, we are going to be successful in glorifying Him through carrying out the mission He has called us to. Tonight, if there's anyone here who is in need in some way, whether you need to put on Christ in baptism, whether you need the prayers of the congregation regarding perhaps a sin in your life that you need to repent of or some other struggle that you're having with different things, we would love to assist you tonight. Our brother has selected a song of invitation. And as we sing that song now together, if there's anyone here who has a need, please make that known by coming up to the front.